Hello everybody and welcome to the Empathy Podcast. My name is Leanne Butterworth. Today we are exploring empathy and surgery with Dr. Christopher Maguire, who is a pediatric surgical registrar. And Chris has really lifted the veil for us on what it's like to be a surgeon, the emotional pressures, the time pressures, the professional pressures. And it's a really illuminating discussion. I really hope you can join us. So welcome, Chris, to the Empathy Podcast. Today we're talking about empathy and surgery and especially empathy and surgeons. So, Chris, can you give us a little bit of an intro about who you are, what you do, and why I'm talking to you today about empathy and surgeons? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Uh, I'm a surgical registrar at the Children's Hospital at the moment. And uh, that means essentially that I'm sort of in the pathway to becoming a surgeon. So not a fully qualified surgeon with a fellowship from the College of Surgeons and actually not on the training program yet, but working in a job that essentially puts you in a position to become a surgeon down the track if you meet certain qualifications and criteria. So I've been doing that now for two years as a surgical registrar. I've been a doctor for five years. And I, I guess the reason that we're talking uh, is because uh, recently, I've been a little bit more active socially in trying to raise awareness around life in the hospital, about being a doctor, about what that involves and, and what it means for patients and for carers and for the general community to be aware of that and uh, trying to discuss more openly some of the issues that I think have been behind closed doors for a long time. So you've been uh, active on TikTok. What do you think the benefit is to actually getting out there and getting this message out there? Well, if someone had told me uh, at the beginning of this year that by this point uh, I would have a following on TikTok, I probably would have laughed at you because I'm not a particularly <laughs> extroverted person and no one ever looks at a surgical registrar in the hospital and says, oh, yeah, that's the sort of socially minded uh, extroverted communicator that you'd like to hang out with uh, on a social media app. Uh, it's just not really part of the um, stereotype. But I put out a video um, on TikTok probably about three or four months ago now that just essentially uh, challenged the myth that you had to be really intelligent to be a doctor and that it was unattainable to people except in the highest echelons uh, of scoring at high school and uh, outlined my reasoning for why I thought that was the case and spoke from a position, I guess, of experience having come to medicine from a humanities background as opposed to a science background. And it seemed to resonate with people. And so I got a lot of messages from people just saying, I really appreciate hearing from someone uh, in that frontline position about what's accessible to me, about what it's like. And I guess getting that feedback encouraged me to uh, keep making videos on topics that I thought people would find interesting. And uh, it seems to have resonated with with a few. And so what's the feedback been? There's just been so many. Like I've had messages from people who are in high school being like, I, I wouldn't have considered medicine as a career until I saw some oh, of your wow. videos or you've inspired me to give it a serious shot. I've had people... Uh, from a health background. So I'm really glad that you're making people aware of some of these challenges that we face because I feel like people don't talk about it. Um, I've had people uh, send me messages asking for advice about how to approach uh, getting into medicine and uh, also about how to approach the hospital system when they've been patients for a long time or perhaps they've had bad experiences in the past and just wanting to explore that. Um, it's just been really nice um, to reach out to people in a different way in, I guess, sort of a semi-professional way, but also more as a a friend, I suppose, that sort of has some insight into how these things work. And yeah. um, that's been really rewarding. One of the um, appealing aspects would be would be putting a human face to what we see as a fairly professional, almost sterile, cold profession. Um, you don't see many surgeons on public oh, social media with personalities. And I think to me, for a lot of professions, actually having that human face is really valuable. Um, in terms of how we perceive and going behind the veil of surgery. I mean, I can only talk from my muggle experience. I mean, I, don't, I haven't had that much experience of hospitals apart from working in admin um, or of surgery. But to me, part of judgment, stigma and fear is that lack of humanity mm. in any sort of situation. So I think you're doing a great job with showing us behind the veil and inspiring people to to believe in themselves to do something that potentially they thought was out of reach. Well, I think that surgery by its nature is a fairly monastic 
profession just in not really because it intends to be but just because it sort of has to be in a way like you mm. you're working long hours at the hospital and the training time is, is very long even when you're fully qualified you're obligated to be at the place of work a lot um, and also I think that patient confidentiality within medicine is very important obviously it's paramount mm. so people don't tend to talk about their work very much um, and it becomes difficult to navigate you know what is something that is uh, accessible to the public and worthwhile discussing and um, where should I put myself out there and versus how much should I be focused just on my primary uh, target requirement, which is to be the best possible surgical mm -hmm. trainee or surgeon that I possibly can be. Um, and there are many professions, I think, historically who have suffered from that. Um, I think the Defence Force is another one where people don't really talk yeah. very much about their experiences and what they've done. Uh, so it's not unique to medicine, but I think now we've become as a generation a bit more socially minded with the way that we're communicating with each other and we've got avenues now that we never had before and formats that we never had before to talk about things that are actually really important to the community in general not just to people in medicine and I think there's also more of an appetite for people to see behind the scenes and understand how the systems work and, and what they're actually engaging with when they come to the hospital and understanding that that world is important not just because people's lives are at stake, but I think also because everyone at some point in their life will have an experience in a hospital, potentially, or with a medical professional. And so understanding who you're talking to and who you're engaging with and where they're up to can fundamentally change, I think, the way that you engage with that system. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, a new thing, I think, because of the opportunities that technology provide and the way that we talk to each other now. Um, I, I don't think that's ever been possible before. And I think surgery, like every other area, that's historically been a little closed is, is going to benefit from that in the longer run uh, when more people see it as accessible, uh, when more people understand how it works uh, and when more people can engage with it. Oh, absolutely. What we're talking about today is empathy. So this is the Empathy Podcast and I have Empathy First and we do empathy training. So, of course, we're going to talk about empathy. And awesome. when we talk about empathy, we talk about sharing and understanding the feelings of another person and responding appropriately. And what I'm hoping to dig into today, Chris, is the three levels of empathy. So empathy for patients, because that's the obvious one, but also empathy for colleagues and empathy for yourself and whether that is even possible. So what my first question is, is why are you a surgeon? What is it that you love about being a surgeon? What is it that drives you and keeps you going and inspires and motivates you to be the best surgeon that you can be well i'll, I'll just make a quick correction one I'm, I'm not a surgeon yet so i just want to be really clear about be that because okay. there will okay. be people who will be listening to will understand the nuances of these sorts of things so okay i um i think the reason why i'm drawn to surgery and uh, and why i'm pursuing that with so much of my time and effort at the moment um is because there's something unique about being able to see a problem um, a really substantial problem that is affecting someone's entire life and likely to affect the rest of their life and being able to offer a solution to that problem uh, and be a part of fixing it. It's just a, a really rewarding and wonderful way to spend your time. If we've all only got a limited amount of time on this earth, then the idea that you can take something that is so massive to somebody in a negative way and, and make it uh, okay or, or to fix it um, is just an incredibly rewarding thing to do. And so there's this almost addictive quality to it in a way where you have the potential through all of the innovations that generations before us have created uh, to help people um, that you keep wanting to do that and then there's the technical aspects of it where if you are looking to challenge yourself and you're looking to see well how far can I take my knowledge how far can I take my technical ability how far can I push myself to make that diagnosis or to uh, figure something out that's really quite difficult to figure out in a timely way then surgery offers an endless pool to swim in. You, know, you are never going to be uh, perfect at every technical aspect. You're never going to be uh, entirely fully knowledgeable in every single area of surgery. You can explore it infinitely. And so if you're one of those people like I am that's drawn to that sort of challenge, then uh, it's a wonderful career to pursue. Um, and then I think also you're inspired by the people that you look up to. You know, like when I started out in medical school, I didn't think I would do surgery. I honestly thought that I would work more in a physician field maybe or something along those lines. Um, and then I, I met people who I was just really drawn to, who I thought were extraordinarily talented, who were very humble, um, who were truly gifted, but doing things that the general population just never saw. And if you walked past mm -hmm. some of these people in the street, you wouldn't comment twice about them. 
But if you saw what I saw of what they were able to do in an operating theatre, um, you'd be uh, stopped in awe at, at their capability. Yeah. And that just blew me away. I, I loved the um, the aspects of it that allowed me to be around those people uh, because I thought that they fundamentally made me better um, as a human being but also as a, a professional. And I think that's, you know, for all of us, some of the things that draw us to our careers is the people that we're with. So I think for all of those reasons is why I was drawn to it and why I continue to pursue it. Yeah, wow. So... <laughs> It's funny, not a single person, I'm up to what, episode 20, not a single person's gone because I lack the cash. Um, it's interesting because everybody loves problem solving and the people and the team and that's what brings people to their profession. So my question is, I don't remember meeting my, let's say, wisdom tooth surgeon very much. Like there was a little bit of a meeting at the beginning. Is there much patient interaction that surgeons have? Or is it you're kind of behind the scenes, you come in once we're asleep? So to answer your question directly, we, we don't get as much time in front of patients as some other areas of medicine do. Um, and I think that's because of the way that the, the system is sort of structured, not necessarily because we don't want to. Um, the day starts with a handover in the morning. So if your team is on call, then anyone who's come through the emergency department or who's been referred by another hospital will be handed over to the team that's going to look after them from then on. And then you'll go and do a ward round. And a ward round might be an hour before the operating theatre starts or the clinic starts. And you might have anywhere between sort of 10 to 30 patients to see in that time. So yeah. just the mathematics only add up that you can see someone for maybe four to five minutes max um, when you're on that round because you've got to account for the walking time between different areas of the hospital as well yeah. to go and see everybody, which actually takes up a fair amount of time depending on which building you're working in. And so when you think about it that way, you've got a very, very small amount of time at the beginning of the day and then a very small amount of time at the end of the day to see people. And in between, you're only reviewing patients opportunistically if there's an issue or you need to clarify something or they deteriorate or whatever it happens to be. So from if you're an inpatient in the hospital, you only probably see your surgical team uh, twice a day for a period of about five to six minutes. Uh, maybe a little bit longer, but often not more than that. And I think that's interesting because it can seem very impersonal to people who haven't seen the system before. But mm. after that five to six minutes, your team is moving on to another person, another person. And then once they reach the time when operating theatres start, they're in the operating theatre and they'll meet the patient briefly before the procedure. And then they'll do the procedure and keep going on until the end of the day. Or if they've got a clinic, then they'll do that. And so the face-to-face -face time with people is short, but the number of people you interact with in any given day is massive. So, you know, you might see people for five minutes, but you might interact with 40 or 50 patients in any given day mm. um, easily. So that's sort of the way it works behind the scenes. So then what's the role of empathy in there? Because I'm assuming patients and especially children and parents would have a very high expectation of you feeling their feelings and valuing them as individuals. Where does empathy play a part in that? Because I'm assuming you can be too empathetic and that would be detrimental to perhaps your mental health and you can be not empathetic at all which may be detrimental to the patient like where's where does empathy play into that so i'd make the distinction between being empathic and being emotional um and okay. i think that's it's a difficult distinction to get your head around when you first think about it but it sort of makes sense in context mm -hmm. so if i'm seeing someone in the emergency department then being empathic toward that person is not only uh, a good thing to be, but it's a necessary thing to be. If someone doesn't feel like you understand where they're coming from or doesn't understand their pain or their suffering or whatever they're going through, then one, they don't tend to be honest with you completely. Um, and two, they won't trust you. And I think that both of those things are critical to making someone better if you want to figure out what's wrong with them and then treat them. You can't do your job unless that's the case. And so it's not just an academic exercise when you're meeting someone. It's, it's a, an exercise in humanity. You have to try and connect with someone in a very short sure. period of time on a very fundamental level and then have them trust you by virtue of your position or your personality or whatever it happens to be to disclose really fundamentally personal things um, in an honest and open way um, and then allow them to let you help them. But if you're in the operating theatre and you are in the middle of a laparotomy, so someone's abdomen is open and it's a trauma situation um, and someone's bleeding or a vessel's been hit 
or they've got some sort of horrendous surgical issue that needs to be sorted out, then being emotionally attached to that person can be a negative thing because you're not thinking impartially. You know, you're not distant from the situation to the point that you need to be to look at it as a technical problem that needs to be solved quickly and efficiently as opposed to an emotional thing that's going to raise your heart rate and cause you to sweat and make your hands shake and those sorts of things. You know, so it's about being completely dispassionate uh, for a purpose under the right context, but at the same time recognising that the humanity is fundamentally important to even getting to that stage in the first place. And I think that tension is difficult for some people to get their head around, um, and it's a real challenge within the job because if you're constantly trying to be those two things you know, at different times throughout the day for different people, um, it can be really draining and it can be very stressful. And I think that there are some people who, after time, allow that dispassionate persona to just become the normal persona because it's sometimes easier not to let people in than it is to just keep going with the daily job when you've seen some really horrible things. Um, but it but it can't really be that way if you want to do the job well because unless you can have that connection and that empathy for the person, I don't think you can do the job properly, um, at least not to the same degree. Uh, mm. And so I think that's sort of it's an interesting aspect of medicine that most people don't see. Mm. So then if you go back to the four or five minutes that you have in order to gain somebody's trust, see them as an individual, get them to open up to you so that you can devise the best course of action and take care of that person, what are some of the ways that you are able to build that trust in four or five minutes? Yeah, it's it's a real challenge because people, all people are different. And that's one of the reasons why I like the diversity in, in, in medicine. And I feel like diversity is becoming a far more important aspect of it is because different people will connect with different people. It sounds sort of silly to say, yeah, but yeah. No, no, no. like um, what I can bring to the table is a very specific thing and it may not necessarily be what a patient needs. And so if you have a team of a diverse range of people, then you're able to do that for a much broader spectrum of patients. But in terms of sort of the individual sort of tactics, I suppose, that you, you bring to a consultation, um, there's a couple of really simple things you can do that I think really make a big difference. One is that you can get yourself down to the patient's level. Like most of the time when you're in a hospital, you're either lying in a bed or, you know, you're sitting down or you're feeling unwell or whatever it happens to be. And then someone walks into the room and they're sort of staring down at you. And so dropping yeah. yourself down to the level of the person so they're talking directly to you is a lot easier sometimes than standing above and I think immediately establishes more rapport. Um, and then starting off with sort of taught techniques in medical school, I suppose, of starting off with general questions um, and letting people explain themselves in their own terms to sort of, one, let them be heard, but two, let them focus on the things that really matter to them as opposed to the things that you think should matter, given how they're presenting or their problem is. Um, and then slowly narrowing in on the important or pertinent information to try and get an answer that you need uh, to guide what therapy is necessary. And then I think you always try to relate to people as well, like particularly with kids, you know, making a joke with them or commenting on how strong they are when you're feeling their belly, you know, or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, using those little techniques to try and bring them a little bit of comfort, I think, tends to bridge that gap very quickly and also brings parents on side very, very quickly as well. But there's so many yeah. techniques that you can use. It's really quite individual and it depends on your personality. I'm very lucky to have a deep voice. So if I slow it down and I, I deep my, deepen my voice a little, it, it can calm people, I think. It's sort of a generally oh, calming yeah. thing. Um, <laughs> you know, that's that's just genetics. I'm lucky in that respect. I, I have that trick. I don't think that makes me better than anyone else in terms of how I deal with it, but it's just a, a nice thing that I was able to bring to the table. Whereas other people have much, much better humour than I do and their wit and, and their sense of jokes, uh, you know, in that setting, it can be a really wonderful icebreaker that I just haven't been out to master yet, but I'm sure that with enough time, maybe I can pick up. Um, mm. It's it's really unique to the individual, but it's a, an incredibly important skill. So is there anything that you do in between patients to not carry things with you? Because in my mind, by the end of, let's say, 30, four or five minutes, to me that sounds exhausting. Is there anything that you do sort of in between so that by the 30th person you're still able to bring the same energy as you did to the first person? I don't think I don't have any particular tactics for that to tell you the truth, but you become used to the rhythm. So it's a little bit like if you're running a marathon or you're running a race um, at any given time, you don't necessarily think about each individual step. You know, you sort of get into a, a rhythm of how you're going to progress through that exercise. And I think on a ward round in particular, it just has a natural flow to it such yeah. that you sort of you don't really see the time passing. Now, as you move between people, it's not sort of like you go five minutes and then you're like, oh, gosh. 
I need a break, but I'm going to muster my energy to go and see another person. It's sort of mm. like, okay, I'm thinking about that person I've just seen. I'm trying to collate all of the information that, that's pertinent that I need to remember to either discuss with a senior colleague or inform a treatment decision or whatever it happens to be. And then I'm at the next person and then I, I go through the same process and it has this flow to it um, mm. such that you just move through the day. And, and it's not uncommon I think in people who are in busy jobs to get to the end of the day and just not realise how the time passed so quickly. But it's sort of like that. You get into a bit of a state where it doesn't really feel like the time is passing in the same way as it does if you're not doing anything. Um, yeah, well. so, uh, so I don't know if it's a technique necessarily as so much as just a state of mind when you're in that sort of job. Mm. I, I think you can sort of put on a professional face uh, reproducibly pretty easily um, when you do it all the time. So if I'm feeling tired, if I walk into a room with someone, I, I like to think that they wouldn't know because you can yeah, sort of muster a certain professionalism and, and way of being and way of interacting that is standardised um, regardless of the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, but that's not to say that the job isn't fatiguing. I think for anyone who works those sorts of hours and does that sort of work, you, you do get tired um, after a while and then particularly toward the end of a week or end of a long set of shifts. Um, and it does require a bit of effort to keep mustering that energy. Um, mm. But the, the interesting thing is that, one, people are interesting. And I think that if you have a fundamental interest in people as a sort of a subject, then you're endlessly going to be interested in the work that you do in a hospital because it's such an interesting melting pot of personalities and situations. Um, but the work is interesting. The problems are interesting. Um, and the technical side of things is really interesting. And so there's never a moment when you're bored, I think, generally speaking, in, in medicine. There's always something that you don't know or something that you could have seen earlier or uh, technical ability that you could have gained and gotten better at. There's always progress. And so every patient interaction, you feel like you're getting a little bit better at the job. You know, every operation, you feel like you're getting a little bit more proficient. Um, and so there's this constant drive forward of sort of personal growth um, that even if you are tired individually, that allows you to muster more energy. And then there's the wonderful rewarding factor of when you've seen someone, seeing them get better. You know, over time, the vast majority of people that come into a hospital leave the hospital well um, or better than they came in when they started. And so that's, you know, invigorating even in itself. We were, mm. you know, I remember many times when I've walked into a patient's room and just to see them, you know, the way that they were before they came into the hospital, before they were sick and sort of meet them for the first time in their well self, so to speak. You know, it's such a wonderful experience at the end of a long day. You're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. You know, but the whole yeah. team... Uh, at this particular moment was able to get this person better and and that's a really special thing. Yeah, well, so then what's the flip side of that then? If you have a particularly bad experience or a particularly negative outcome, what is the way that you guys, I guess, support your own mental health and support each other and not bring that into the next patient? I mean, if you've still got a very long shift to go and you've had a, a negative experience at the beginning of the day, what how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's really hard. I don't think that we have good answers to that yet, really. I think it's something we're only really exploring in a detailed way now. Um, if you look at some of the data on doctors' mental health, it's horrific. Uh, Beyond Blue did a uh, 2015 survey where they looked at medical students and doctors to identify all-cause depression, uh, suicidal ideation, suicide. And I think some of the most striking figures out of that was that 10% of doctors within the last 12 months had considered committing suicide. Um, And in their entire careers, 24% had considered the person, which is just an extraordinary number when you think about it, one in four people. And I think that's a culmination of a whole range of different factors. But... One of them is the trauma that you experience in the job. Now, not every day is traumatic. Not every day when you go into work do you see something horrible. But I think that the longer that you stay in a hospital, the more likely it is that you're going to see something really confronting. And it only takes sort of, you know, one or two or three of those episodes to to really affect someone for their entire life. You know, I think like we talk about uh, veterans returning from overseas who have been in conflicts and seeing horrific things and how that impacts them throughout the course of their entire life and the chronicity of trauma and the effect it has on people. Uh, But I don't think we've really talked about that in medicine very much, Um, despite the fact that some of the things that you see and do in medicine um, are of that level to a certain Mm. degree. And one of the videos that I put out on TikTok early on in the piece, just to uh, illustrate that point to a certain degree, was answering a question to say that some people had commented that they thought that their experiences with health professionals weren't very empathic, that doctors didn't really care or whatever it happened to be. And I thought, well, that's a really, it's a really valid point because obviously that's the experience that that person has had. But I thought I might put out 
and something that outlined the different side of things. And I, I talked about an example that I'd had as a surgical registrar where I'd been starting an evening shift and I'd been called down to the ED for what we call the trauma respond, which is essentially where all of the critical care components of the hospital get mobilised to someone who's being retrieved. So it might be a car accident, uh, it might be a gunshot wound, whatever it happens to be, it's a significant traumatic incident. Um, and in this case, it was a young person who'd been on a motorcycle that hit a tree. And it was a, a young, young person. And they uh, they came into the emergency department uh, virtually uh, non-salvageable, um, which sounds like a horrible thing to say about a person, I suppose. But in medical terms, essentially, it was someone who was unlikely to survive. Um, but we opened up their chest in the emergency department, which is an extremely rare thing to have to do. I was on one side of the patient. My boss was on the other side of the patient. He had his hands in the chest, literally beating the heart while the uh, anaesthetic doctors were intubating the patient in the emergency room and to watch you know a young person bleed out in front of you um, oh. and literally onto you before you're starting a 14-hour shift on call has an impact and I don't think anyone can go through that experience and not be impacted by it emotionally and uh, professionally and then you have to go and see someone who's uh, got abdominal pain you know for four or five days or someone who comes in and They've uh, um, got a, a burn or whatever it happens to be, a whole range of other people who have relatively minor issues in comparison. And I think that if you were to interact with the doctor, you know, like me on that night who'd been through something like that, I probably would have come across as very distant um, and yeah. somewhat unempathic and just generally, I think, a little reserved relative to how I would usually be because, you know, my mind was occupied with what I'd just been through. And... That's not necessarily an uncommon story in, in medicine. It doesn't have to be a trauma. It, it might be an elderly patient that's just passed away that yeah. you'd built up a relationship with over four or five weeks. Or it might be a young child that's been suffering from cancer who just didn't didn't make it. You know, it's yeah. rare. These things don't happen every day, but when they happen, they really impact on people. And so if you come across a medical professional, whether it's a nurse or someone in allied health or a doctor, but you just don't know whether that might have been the experience that they'd had recently or even not too recently. And they happen to have been triggered by something that they saw in the day to remember that incident. Mm. Um, and, and I think that that's a difficult thing for people to appreciate if they haven't lived that experience. Yeah. Because we sort of see the hospital sitting in the middle of the city and it looks like a really normal place to be. You know, it looks like any other business building, you know, or, yeah. or any other location because it's literally in the middle of the metropolitan centre. Um, but inside those walls, it's a different world. Uh, and the, the things that people are experiencing in, in those walls is different to, I think, almost anything else uh, mm. outside of it. Uh, so that can be a bit of a challenge at times. And I think that can be why people can see uh, you as unempathetic in medicine at times too. Mm. And I think it's really important. I mean, I talk about this podcast as having a number of different audiences, and I think one of them is the general public. And it's remembering that empathy is a two-way street and it's managing our expectations. So, yes, we want our medical professionals to be empathetic of us, but it's really important that we stop and think about their perspective as well and leave judgment at the door. I mean, a lot of people even have this perception that surgeons are all, oh, you're living the high life, you're all driving Mercedes or surgical registrars. I mean, we don't, honestly, and not to be naive, but we don't know the difference. So we think, mm. we, the general we, think you're fine, you're all, you're all driving Mercedes, you're all living the high life in your big house. So I think it's important that people take those couple of minutes to go, no, 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 this may have happened. Same for nurses and paramedics and police. Your last patient or job may have been hugely traumatic and that's important for us to take into account as well. But also, what does it take to be a surgeon? Like, do you go home at five o'clock, get a martini with two olives, put your feet up and go, well, that was a good day? Like, what does, the, what does it take to become a surgeon like what path are you on do you have free time do you do a yoga class to unwind the, the answer to the question is no <laughs> <laughs> i'm not, not flexible enough for yoga even if i wanted to i think but um the the pathway is long uh, it, it really is and i think that uh it's become more challenging perhaps uh even than it used to be and i think it was never easy to do regardless of the circumstances so i guess from a bare bones point of view 
you come out of medical school after four to six years worth of study, uh, and that's usually postgraduate, but sometimes it's undergraduate. Uh, and then you do your internship year, which is your provisional year of registration as a doctor in Australia. So once you finish that year, you can technically practice independently, but in real terms, you need to get onto a training program or work under supervision still to progress in your career. Um, and then you might do two or three years as a junior doctor called a resident, which is someone who's working in rotational positions within the hospital. You might do 10 weeks in paediatrics, 10 weeks in surgery, 10 weeks in ED, whatever. Um, and during that time, you're sort of building your resume to be eligible for a training program. And if you're interested in surgery, then you need a certain number of uh, rotations in surgery and you need a certain number of other things that you score points on a CV for. And those things aren't insignificant. They're things like professional courses with the College of Surgeons, uh, published papers in international or national peer-reviewed journals, uh, presentations at conferences, um, the uh, extracurricular uh, activities that you might do, for example, in some specialties representing Australia in certain areas is, is recognised or uh, working in professional areas like the military or the police or whatever it happens to be is recognised. Um, having higher degrees, so having a master's or a PhD, will get you additional points. Um, and so you have to sort of build this, this resume up um, in conjunction with your professional life. So uh, once you've finished your residency, you then go into the position that I'm in, which is an unaccredited training position. It's essentially like a trainee, but not on the training program. Um, and that's where you're gaining experience in decision-making and operating, uh, but you're not necessarily being trained in inverted commas to become a surgeon yet uh, under the auspices of the College of Surgeons. So my, my life at the moment, sort of leading towards applying to a training position, uh, is very much both professional uh, at work and professional at home. So I'll start the day at probably 5.30 in the morning. I'll get to the hospital at about 6.30, maybe a little earlier. Uh, I'll get handover at 7. And before that, I might see a few patients beforehand so that I've got enough time to see the new patients before going to the operating theatre or the clinic. Uh, we'll do the ward round. We'll do time in operating theatre or clinic. We'll finish uh, second ward round at the end of the day. And now if the operating theatre finishes at five o'clock in the evening, then the round will probably finish at about 6.30 to seven. Um, and then after seven o'clock, uh, I'll tidy up any administrative jobs that needed to be done so that the next day is ready. And I'll probably prepare the list for the following day. So that means researching all the patients that are going to be on the operating theatre list so that I know all their stories and I know what we're going to be doing for them. Um, and then after I've finished that, I'll head home. So that might be like 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, um, sometimes a little earlier, depending on the day. Uh, and then when I get home, uh, I'll be working on a research project uh, or a master's, which will be, you know, a university endorsed program to try and get some more points, which will make me more eligible for the training program that I'm interested in. Uh, or I might be uh, going to the Army Reserve uh, because that's something that I do as well to try and build up my professional profile there and gain some additional skills and also because it's something I enjoy doing. Um, and so for everyone who's working towards this, your, your day is essentially... Uh, one big professional development exercise. Uh, and uh, if you add in sort of on-call shifts as well, and that takes up weekends, uh, then it can become very all-encompassing. And I think that's the reason why uh, you see stories, I guess, on, on sort of popular TVs of these hardworking surgeons that never have any time at home and, you know, people who are burnt out and, you know, working extremely long hours. I think in some cases that's sort of the one true thing about popular culture is that that actually does happen. People do actually work those sorts of hours, and that's no. almost a requirement to get to where you want to be on a training program or through a training program. Um, and then if you think about it, it's not just getting onto the program, it's about actually having the knowledge and the skills. So you then have to fit in study somewhere in there as well. And there's a lot to yeah. learn. You know, So if you're not spending sort of half an hour a day or an hour a day learning more, then you're not really getting uh, uh, better to the level that you need to. Yeah. So it's um, it's not the sort of thing you would do uh, if you just wanted to be paid well. It's It's a it's a, essentially a um, uh, all-encompassing, uh, totally absorbing uh, activity uh, to, to become a surgeon. So then given that you're busy, you've got stress, pressure, fear, trauma, all those sorts of things playing in, where does self-care actually play into that? And is there a benefit to self-care? I mean, are you able to be a better surgical registrar? Are you? Do you study better if you put in self-care like is it a is it a priority and what sort of things do people do what do you do i think it has to be a priority um because we know now that there's a huge impact of burnout on people if they don't prioritize those sorts of things the question i suppose that is the million dollar question is how do you do that while also maintaining the requirements mm -hmm. to get to where you want to go 
and there's only so many hours in a day. I think for me personally, the um, the biggest priority that I've uh, tried to have is is getting enough sleep because I'm not one of those people who can sleep for six hours and, and then keep going. You can do that for a couple of days, but it's not routine for me. Mm. Um, and so just having enough sleep has a huge impact on how well you can operate throughout the day and, and how well you feel as a person, I think, at the end of it. Um, but I think you have to be very, very fortunate in your uh, support structures if you're doing something like this. You know, like I'm very lucky to have a, a loving wife that I can come home to and, and family who are supportive and a good group of friends from medical school and outside of medical school that I can talk to um, and relate to. Uh, and when you're spending so much of time at work, your professional family becomes really important too. You know, the people that you're working with almost become uh, that close just because of the stuff that you're doing together and the amount of time that you're spending together. Um, so the support structures that you look for in medicine, I think, are the same that everyone looks for. You just have to try and find the time for it, which I think is more challenging sometimes in healthcare than otherwise. But there's certainly a big movement towards focusing on it now. You'll see a lot more uh, in the news about doctors' mental health, about prioritising uh, people's lives, about flexible working arrangements and allowing for that. And I think that the College of Surgeons is doing a lot of work in this area at the moment, um, particularly with regards to bullying and harassment that recently launched a operating with respect policy and uh, framework, which hopefully will have a, a big impact on the way that we talk about these sorts of things within the profession. There's one is the normative force. It's the fact that people are talking about it openly, about how we treat each other and how we uh, train, uh, how we learn and how we get better. Uh, and so the more people talk about that and the more people accept that as a valid conversation, I think the better the impact is over time just through that force. But then there's more official pathways now for raising concerns. Um, within the training framework and about recognising that harassment and bullying has occurred in the past, it's not acceptable mm -hmm. and it needs to yeah. be addressed. And so I think that now that there's official frameworks in place or more official frameworks in place and perhaps more advocates within the senior positions, um, it's becoming easier to confront that sort of thing and yeah. that's important. But there's um, there are still challenges and I think that if you're not on a training program like I am then you're in a sort of vulnerable position because you don't have the protection of those structures in the same way um, and so there's a big population of doctors in the hospitals who aren't on training programs but are aiming to get there uh, who aren't the beneficiaries of those innovations so there's there's a lot of work to do. So it feels like from what you've said you're copying it from every angle especially in days gone by you've got the precariousness of your position because you're not on a training program you've got the I guess the trauma that potentially comes with the role itself you've got bullying harassment that they're trying to stamp out you've got a lack of self-care because the pressure of actually what you're required to do now to get on a training program and continue on that path that sounds hugely stressful what is the role and the benefit and this importance of team so if everybody's going through this together what is the importance of team to maintaining your sanity and staying on top of and at the peak of your ability and professional practice yeah the team is hugely important i think the people that you're working with are very important the the interesting dynamic though is that uh particularly when you're at a position when you're in training uh, or you're trying to get onto training there's sort of this dual dynamic to a team on one level you're all working towards the same common objective which is to provide excellent patient care and be as good as you possibly can be uh, but at the same time as well you're sort of competing with each other to a certain degree too uh, because you're all looking to get to the same position and there's limited numbers of spaces and that's just a reality of the nature of the, the system as it is and and that's that's fine you know that's that's not a bad thing in, inherently but it does create a, a certain dynamic and I think that for the most part, um, people look past that. They they will all work together extremely well and everyone gets along very well. Um, but it can be difficult because, you know, you want the best for the people that you care about and the people that I care about, I, I want the best for. Uh, but at the same time, it's also a zero-sum game when it comes to selection. And so it's the support structures that you would have in a professional environment in other places perhaps aren't quite so strong in a healthcare environment, uh, maybe because of some of those structural effects. But certainly, I think among um, doctors having support from uh, colleagues and seniors and uh, and juniors as well um, is hugely important to your overall mental health. And of course, you're not competing with everybody. So it's silly to say that that's a dynamic that's overwhelming. Yeah. It's just a, a subset of 
what you uh, what you see within a hospital. Um, but I, I don't really want to paint a sub story either because I, I chose this sort of life and, and all of us who work in there chose it too and we really love it. And so it's not it's not hard to to necessarily work in this sort of way every day because there are so many positive aspects to it. Um, but I think that we need to be more aware uh, of the impact that it can have on individuals to go through a process like this and also about how accessible it is to people because if you're not don't fall into a very narrow category of individual it can be very very hard to do this you know if i I wasn't married with a wife who's extremely supportive i think i would find it very very difficult um, Mm -hmm. to do all of the things that i need to do um, in order to get here my my wife is a psychiatrist so she's extremely qualified in her own right and she um works uh, in in a more senior level than I do in the hospital, but I'm very lucky because I can get all of my mental health training and uh, input for free, right? So yeah. I'm in a very unique subset of people. But, you know, if if you don't have access to some of those support structures, it's very difficult to go through this process. If you have three or four kids, it can be extremely difficult to work the sort of hours that you do as a surgical registrar um, and still have time for your family um, and have mm-hmm. that tension there. And, you know, I've worked with trainees who are on the program who are three or four years into it um, who have had real struggles, you know, with their families and with their kids um, because of what's required in their professional and their personal lives. So I think that it's a conversation we need to have about how do we maintain the standard that we expect within mm. the profession? How do we make sure that people are performing at a level of excellence that the community would expect and that we would expect as doctors? But how do we also make it accessible enough that that it's a reasonable option for people to do regardless of their circumstances? Because otherwise you lose good people you know, who would otherwise be excellent at the job, who just simply can't do it because of the the nature of the training. Yeah. Do they have EAPs and psychs for you guys to talk to? And like, is there that support structure for the medical staff within the hospital? Does that exist? Um, some hospitals do. It, it depends a little bit on the, on the hospital system. So okay. there's some independent groups like the Doctors' Health Advisory Service, which is like a phone number that you can call if you'd like to talk to a doctor about a mental health issue. Um, most people, if they saw a psychiatrist, wouldn't be charged to go and see a psychiatrist to talk. But there's there's some large disincentives as well. You know, at the hospital, you, you don't necessarily want to be... Some people, I think, uh, I don't know if this is universally true anymore, but there's been a culture that you don't want to be seen as weak. So you don't want to raise a concern or an issue or be seen as not being able to cope. Um, if you're seeing someone about a mental health issue, then there's legal implications to if you're compromised from a mental health point of view. And so people um, have a disincentive from seeking care from either GPs or psychologists or psychiatrists because of mandatory reporting requirements, um, which is there to try and protect patient care, but it can also disincentivize people from seeking help too. Um, And if you're in that environment all the time, of course, you become normalized to it to a certain degree as well. And so sometimes people don't realize how compromised they are until it reaches a tipping point. Um, and I yeah. think that that is also something that we we have to work on. So yeah. people are aware of it, and and the systems that are in place are improving, uh, but there's there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. So I mean, my next question was going to be: Is there still that stigma around mental health? But by the sound of it, there's also professional and system systemic implications of mental health being discussed. Yeah, there are. And I think there's definitely still a stigma around it. My wife and I often talk about this, the fact that there's a stigma around how people engage with psychiatry services alone, let alone how medical professionals engage with their own mental health. I think in the general community, we're still struggling with that. But I think that it's a lot better than it used to be. And I guess I'd stress that is that I think we've made a lot of progress in the last sort of five to 10 years in particular. And I I don't see that slowing down. I think that's going to continue. And there's a generation coming through now who I think are more aware um, than anyone ever has been before about the impact that these things have. And I think that um, people in senior positions are equally probably relieved to be able to talk about these things. Because I think that even if you come from a generation that was holding it all in and, and not willing to talk about this sort of stuff and, and be stoic and, and carry on, what a tremendous burden to carry your entire professional life, you know, to, to not be able to disclose those sorts of things or not be able to talk about them in a way that was open. In, in a way, I, I feel like it would be a relief. To, to be able to address it more openly and talk about how we might mitigate it. I think we are seeing that, you know, for, at all levels. Yeah. I'm seeing that in um, a couple of professions now is, especially in the firefighters. I mean, I spoke to a retired firefighter the other day who said mm. bottling it up for 30 years has mm. implications. Um, and 
in my mind as well, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you've said that the amount of study it takes and the amount of hours it takes to become the top of your profession. And But if you take into account the mental health, the self-care, the self-compassion, to me, that would improve patient care and patient outcomes. Is that right? I think it does intuitively, but but I don't have any data to support that. And I think it would be very hard to uh, to measure that sort of outcome over time, which is one of the reasons why I think we don't address it directly. Because yeah, if you could measure the improvement in patient care associated with well-being of doctors um, directly, I think you'd have a much stronger case for making a lot of systemic changes. But I think it's hard to see that sort of thing because it's yeah. it's the effect of microactions and implications over time um, is difficult to pick up on. But I think in the aggregate is huge. Mm. Um, so I, it makes intuitive sense to me to say that improving mental health of doctors would improve patient care, but, but I can't necessarily say that for sure. But I think also the other thing to keep in mind is that there's a tension here because at the same time, you want to be really good at what you do. You know, if you mm. do this sort of stuff, you want to be really, really good. And the way you become really good is by being present at the hospital a lot because you don't know what's going to come through the door. So on any given day, I don't know which skills I'm going to be able to improve or which diagnoses I'm going to get better at managing because I don't know who's going to present to the ED um, or who's going to come into the clinic. And so unless I'm there over a longer period of time and I just, through the randomness of who presents, build up a huge re repository of knowledge and, and technical skill, then I'm not getting to the level that I want. So there's an incentive to keep working hard, to, to be stoic, to continue pushing because every single day that I'm there for an extra hour is a day that I'm becoming that much better at what yeah. I want to do. And that's going to make me safer and that's going to make me a more effective surgeon in the long run. So if I want to treat someone or if you're a patient, let's say, and you want to choose a surgeon, it's not really as easy as saying, I want someone who's well-rested, you know, <laughs> every day of their life, yeah. you know, so that when they're operating on me or I want someone who's not well-rested. You know, because the person who's not well rested may be tired, but they may have done that procedure 40 times more than the person who's been really well rested, right? And so their technical skills, even when fatigued, are probably better than the person who's not fatigued. So it's not a direct comparison. Yeah. And I think there's there's a natural um, uh, desire of anyone who's in this profession to be really, really good at what they do. I don't think anyone comes to work every day and says, I'm just going to sort of coast today, you know, in, 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 in this. You know, I'm just going to sort of go through the motions and I'll get home and, and then I'll enjoy being at home. It's like, no, you, you're there, you're there to play and the stakes are high. And yeah. it doesn't matter, you know, how many hours you're there, every hour that you're there is, is an hour that something could go terribly wrong. You know, and so you want to be 100% focused every single day on what you're doing. And if you can get a little bit of extra experience by staying back an additional two hours to see an additional operation that might be a bit rare so that the next time you're there and maybe you're the one responsible, you can do it, then mm. that's a price worth paying, even if it means that you get two hours less of sleep. Because I don't know when that's going to be there again. Yeah. You know, I don't know when I'm going to have that chance again. So I've got to take it now while I, while I can do it. So then... Really quickly, and I don't know if, if this is a thing or if it's just from me watching ER, but drugs and alcohol then are stimulants and things that keep you awake and get you sleep when you need sleep. Is that a real issue that's happening in the real world? Well, it's not one that I've come across, honestly. Like I, I'm, I'm sure that there probably are those issues, but I just haven't come across it myself. So I don't know whether I just live a really charmed existence and a really sheltered existence, um, but I haven't I haven't really seen that. And yeah. I think that maybe that's because, you know, when you're at the hospital, people are always switched on, you know, like you don't spend a lot of time socialising outside of work with people who you work with. Um, okay. Not because you don't want to, like people do catch up and people are friends, but you just don't have a lot of time, you know, outside of the hospital to socialise, you know, yeah. and when people are outside of the hospital, invariably they sort of want to spend time with friends and family and so forth who are outside of their professional network. And I sort of understand that too, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's sort of like what you'd see on ER or scrubs where people go home and you know, drink themselves into a binge or anything like that. Like I haven't, I haven't come across that sort of coping. I'm sure it happens for some people and I can imagine the trauma or the stress response of dealing with difficult situations can lead down that path. But yeah. um, it's not something that I've seen inherently or um, ubiquitously around this profession. Yeah. So then reaching out to colleagues who you think are struggling, is that a no-go zone? Um, I can only speak from my own experience. But I think that people are getting a lot better at doing that. Yeah, I think okay. people are getting a lot better at doing that. Um, even when there aren't formal processes in place, um, I think people now uh, are trying. Like uh, when I've had traumatic experiences, 
um, I've been fortunate enough to have some seniors who have reached out to me and you know sent me messages after the fact or given me a call after the fact just to check in. And so I think those sort of personal actions can in some ways be surrogates for systemic actions. Yeah. And I think that particularly people who sort of all work at the coalface together and see these sorts of things recognize that that's a very strong coping strategy for everybody. And, and I think that does happen quite a bit. But um, but it can be difficult sometimes too to find the time you know, to do those sorts of things. You know, if you're, you know, like on that example that I gave you about to go and continue a shift, it's not exactly yeah. like you've got time to debrief and sit down for an hour and, and talk through it. You know, it's there's there's always a lot of work to be done. There's never a time in the hospital, at least in surgery, where there isn't something that could be done. Uh, and so I think that we sometimes struggle to find the time to do it properly yeah, uh, as opposed to just doing it. I think there's so much for us to learn in this. I mean, like I said, empathy is a two-way street and we all expect it from our health professionals, but I think it's so important that it comes back your way. I mean, what you're doing is amazing. I think you're wonderful. Um if my children, if my children ever need anybody, I'm going to come and find you. Um, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> but I just think it it lifts that veil, humanizes the surgical profession. So if you've got advice for people who are thinking of getting into the medical profession, what would your piece of advice be? I think that for me, the most important thing is to try and figure out if you really love people. Um, I think that the fundamental narrative around medical school and around medicine is that it's sort of a trophy for intelligent people to achieve um, if you have the capability to do it. That, you know, when you're in school, people say, if you get an OP1 or you get a really good ATAR, you should pursue medicine or engineering or law or whatever it happens to be because you're smart enough to do it. But I think that really the focus needs to be is do you really love people, you know, as a fundamental question? Because if you if you do, then there's no better place to, to engage with that uh, and to execute on that than a hospital. There really isn't, in my opinion, uh, because you're seeing people at their worst moments and then you're also seeing them at their best moments uh, and everything in between. And unless you have sort of an uh, insatiable appetite to engage with that and to be there for people and be with people and live with people in those moments, then I don't know if medicine would be for you. And that's not uniquely true. I'm sure that there are exceptions to that rule. But I think that if I was giving people a general piece of advice that I think uh, would be valuable to them, I'd, I'd ask them to figure that out first. Because if they could answer that and say yes, then I think all of the hours are worth it. I think all of the study is worth it. I think all of the time is worth it if that's what drives you. Um, but if you're not, and it's okay to not be, um, I, I think that doesn't make you a bad person. But if you're not, then it may not necessarily be sustainable for you in the long run. Uh, and yeah. that's the, the question you have to ask yourself. Yeah, wow. Well. Chris, thank you so much for today. I genuinely appreciate your time. I want you to be well. I want you to take care of yourself so that you can take better care of your patients, cram as much knowledge as you can into that lovely head of yours. Thank you so much, Chris. It's such a pleasure, Leanne. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, I really learned a lot. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insight and knowledge with us. If you'd like to find Chris on TikTok, you can find him at Chris underscore R underscore Maguire. And if you'd like to learn more about empathy training and things that we do at Empathy First and our new How Empathetic Are You quiz, you can head to empathyfirst.com.au. My name's Leanne Butterworth. This was the Empathy Podcast. I'll see you next time.